You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. And welcome to the 1877th edition of the St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 5th of May 2022. The editor of this edition is myself, Graham, the producer is Ruth, and your readers are Christian and myself, Graham. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And what we'll do is we'll start with headlines. County confirms concern over 1,020 homes in final phase of the garden suburb. Pressure grows for alternative to more pylons ruining Suffolk countryside. Hospital lane closure plans concerns. Suffolk A roads face overnight disruption over the coming months. County confirms concerns over 1,020 homes in final phase of garden suburb. County leaders have confirmed their holding objections over plans for 1,020 new homes. The final phase of the 3,500 property Ipswich Garden Suburb. Ipswich Borough Council is due to decide Mercy Homes Red House Park project this year. Suffolk County Council said it recognised the importance of new housing on the northern fringe of Ipswich, but said more information was needed on key areas with chief concerns, being surface water drainage from the Millennium Cemetery to the east, increased flood risk in Westerfield, drainage on school sites, adequacy of the traffic survey, impact on the wider road network, need more for evidence on prioritisation of cycling and walking routes, crossing on Tuttenham Road being too close to the railway bridge, inadequate travel plan and loss of habitat and biodiversity, including the existing green corridor on the western boundary with Westerfield Road. Richard Smith, Conservative Cabinet Member for Economic Development, Transport Strategy and Waste, said it was an important scheme for the future development of Ipswich, and officers are seeking to resolve issues by working with the Borough Council so the benefits of the development, including the delivery of a new primary and secondary school, can be realised. He said, Suffolk County Council cannot support this outline planning application at this time, pending further information and clarification, and it requests that Ipswich Borough Council should not determine this application until our Council's present concerns are met. Inga Lockington, Division Councillor and Ipswich spokesperson from the Green Liberal Democrat and Independent Group, said, we need housing and places for residents to live, but we also need to think about the residents who will be affected by the development. The biggest concerns are roads, traffic and drainage. They are the ones which have always come up with residents. Sandy Martin from the Labour Group said, everyone can agree that the new garden suburb needs to be safe for walkers and cyclists. And obviously, the new secondary school needs to have adequate and easily maintained drainage. These are not party political issues. We just need to make sure we get them right. But we also need to be aware that there are hundreds of young families in Ipswich that are desperate for houses of their own. In its application, Mercia Homes said... Red House Park will make a significant contribution to the growth and development of Ipswich, providing much-needed housing in a well-designed garden suburb environment. Pressure grows for alternative to more pylons, ruining Suffolk countryside. 
Calls are mounting from Suffolk political figures for an undersea electricity grid to be considered as an alternative to new power lines across rural East Anglia. National Grid has published proposals for new power pylons from Norwich to Tilbury in Essex, running via the substation in Bromford on the edge of Ipswich. The pylons are needed by the end of 2030 to carry renewable and low-carbon power to homes and businesses, National Grid said, and proposes the route to be mostly new pylons, but with some undergrounding. Conservative South Suffolk MP James Cartledge last week said he had concerns about the impact near the area of outstanding natural beauty to his constituency. He said... To sufficiently reduce the impact on our countryside, the entire section of pylons outside the AONB would need to be undergrounded, or better still, run under sea via a bootstrap connection, such as already are in use off the coast of East Anglia and around the UK. I have consistently advocated undersea electricity transmission bootstraps, carrying the green energy produced on our shore to the population centres in London and the South East. And the East Anglia Green proposals demonstrate how necessary it is to improve the way we transmit energy across the country. Now, Green councillors in Suffolk have said that an undersea electric grid should be considered as an alternative, linking Sizewell and offshore wind farms with London. Rachel Smith-Light, Green Councillor for Melton at East Suffolk Council, said, With more wind farms and a continuing need to install additional capacity off East Anglia, what is missing is a strategic approach by government to link them all together. We know that putting cables under the sea is more expensive than pylons, but this is no surprise when every energy company is constructing a separate landfall and its own grid connections on land. If you put a grid under the sea and then get companies to cooperate, costs will be very significantly reduced. The key is for government to intervene in order to make sure this happens. Andrew Stringer, Green, Liberal Democrat and Independent Group Leader at Suffolk County Council and Mid-Suffolk District Member, said he had worked on the idea with the late Lord Michael Blakenham, a Bromford Independent District Councillor who put forward the idea back in 2012. At 45 to 50 metres high, if these proposed pylons go ahead, they will have a massive impact on our rural landscapes and community green spaces, Mr Stringer said. In particular, the city setting of many listed buildings would be greatly diminished. Given that this alternative grid solution would meet our in increasing need for green electricity cables with far less impact, it really does merit further serious consideration. National Grid launched a consultation last week on its Norwich to Tilbury plans, which runs until June 16th, and said consultation responses will be carefully considered. Another consultation round has been pledged before a formal planning application for the scheme, known as East Anglia Green, is lodged in late 2024. National Grid said the reinforcement is needed to carry more renewable and low-carbon power from offshore wind and interconnectors, subsea electricity cables that share electricity between UK and Europe. The plans include building a new 400,000 volt electricity transmission line between Norwich Main Station, Norwich Main Substation in Norfolk and Bromford Substation in Suffolk and between Bromford Substation and Tilbury Substation in Essex. The new reinforcement is expected to be around 180 kilometres in length and made up mostly of new pylons with some underground cables where the route crosses an area designated for its outstanding natural beauty. A new substation is also proposed on the Tendring Peninsula to connect two new offshore wind farms to the electricity network. According to National Grid, the existing network was developed in the 1960s and to date has been able to meet demand. 
but increased renewable and low carbon power by 2030 means demand on the network will increase significantly and the existing power lines do not have the capacity to meet demand without reinforcement. Now, I should apologise because uh, I did read out a headline and I've suddenly realised that actually before I go on to that headline about the hospital lane closure plans, uh, I have another uh, uh, outline planning application submitted for a replacement West Suffolk Hospital. So that's actually re very relevant to the uh, headline that I was going to read. So uh, I'll start with outline planning application submitted for a replacement West Suffolk Hospital. West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust, abbreviated to WSFT, has submitted an application for outline planning permission for a new hospital to be built on the Hardwick Manor Estate, which will replace the existing West Suffolk Hospital. In December 2020, WSFT announced Hardwick Manor and Bury St Edmunds as the preferred site for the new hospital. Following a programme of extensive engagement with public, staff and partners throughout 2021, from which close to 1,800 feedback forms were received. WSFT has submitted an application to the Local Planning Authority for outline planning consent. This application is based around a broad parameter plan and includes a highly detailed assessment of how the proposed facility will impact its environment, including traffic, ecology, views and hydrology. The application can be viewed on the West Suffolk Council planning portal at https colon forward slash forward slash planning dot westsuffolk.gov.uk forward slash online hyphen applications forward slash and by searching for reference dc forward slash 22 forward slash 0593 forward slash HYB. Now I appreciate that rather a lot so if anyone is interested in um, looking at that I will repeat that at the end of the uh, our session. All feedback relating to the application should be directed to the local planning authority via the online planning portal. Trust Interim Chief Executive Craig Black said the outline planning application seeks permission for the initial impression of the project and how it might fit into its surroundings. We thank everyone who has participated in the engagement opportunities we have provided so far. Your input is invaluable and we look forward to working with you as the project progresses. Now I'll continue to the uh, headline that I had read out earlier, which is Hospital Lane Closure Plan Concerns. Concerns have been raised over plans to restrict access along a route to encourage sustainable transport to West Suffolk's hospital's new site. Residents have been given their views on a hybrid application for the new hospital on land at Hardwick Manor in Hardwick Lane, Bury St Edmunds. A key concern is changes to Gypsy Lane between the B1066 and the A143 junction and Horsecroft Road, which would be restricted to emergency vehicles and cycle and pedestrian traffic only, with footpath links created. It is part of proposed walking and cycling improvements between the site and surrounding area outlined in a travel plan to reduce by 10% over five years the number of staff and visitors driving a car or van and boost sustainable transport. In a letter to West Suffolk Council, one resident who walks along Gypsy Lane regularly said the route was closed at the A143 end with cycle-only access 15 to 20 years ago. He said... As a walker, it suited me very well. However, within a few months, the lane was reopened 
to vehicular traffic due to protests from villagers south of Bury, for whom this lane was an important means of access. The history of the previous change should be fully investigated before the lane was closed again to vehicles, he said. He also felt a footpath cyclepath extension on the A143 was pretty much useless because they lead to nowhere and instead should extend well into Horringer Village and as far as Glastonbury Road. The gypsy lane closures to vehicles would inevitably place additional load on a spread eagle junction, he added. Another resident noted that when a similar scheme in Gypsy Lane was tried, the extra traffic down Horringer Road led to queues back to Bristol Road. They said a pedestrian cycleway should be built next to a widened road. Concerns from other residents included a planned multi-storey car park which could be encouraging more traffic to an already gridlocked area. Another suggested a separate direct access to the A14 which would require a road or flyover from the Ruffham Hill area. Other measures suggested within the travel plan to cut down on car use include cycle parking for staff and visitors and promotion of walking and cycling as well as public transport. Incentives will also be explored for the staff who car share to and from the site. The deadline to comment on the proposals via the West Suffolk Council planning portal is May the 18th. Suffolk A roads face overnight disruption over the coming months. Overnight road closures on some of the county's key A roads for resurfacing work have been confirmed for the next two months. Suffolk Highways last week confirmed it plans to treat 150 miles of the county's roads across more than 170 sites for its programme running from now until the end of August. The programme includes road reef surfacing, where the old surface is either overlaid or removed to a certain depth and a new surface applied, or surface dressing, where the existing road surface is sealed and improved. Portions of the county's main A road routes have been confirmed for May and June, with dates and diversions now lined up. Suffolk Highways said the schemes will be overnight road closures to limit disruption as much as possible, with working hours for each scheme varying between 7pm and 6am. A spokesman said, Surface treatments are very weather dependent and may be subject to change. So for all updates, I would suggest regularly checking one network for further details, including diversion routes. Prior to some of these works, there may be the requirement to carry out surface dressing preparations. Outlined here are planned dates and locations of works on the Suffolk Highways managed routes. The A14 is managed by national highways and is not included here. Starting with the A12. The A12 main road at Kelsale cum Carlton from Town Farm Lane to Main Road and the A12 main road at Yoxford between Main Road and Brook Street will be surface dressed. Preparation work is planned from May the 12th to the 14th surface dressing from May the 18th to the 20th and road markings and road studs between May the 23rd and 28th. Following that, five other portions of the A12 will be in line for full resurfacing. The A12 at Woodbridge will be resurfaced from May the 24th to the 27th, the A12 at Melton from May the 30th to June the 7th, the A12 at Bennell from June the 8th to the 10th, the A12 at Blytheborough from June the 10th and the A12 at Brightwell from June the 20th to the 24th. Now on the A134. Work on the A134 is planned between Barnham and Bracken Road in Thetford. Preparation and surface dressing will run from June 10th to 11th before road markings and road studs are completed from June 15th 
to 22nd. Now the A140. Both road resurfacing and surface dressing are planned for the A140 at Stonham Parva from May the 12th to 27th between Paynes Hill and Debenham Road. And finally the A143. Preparation will take place on the A143 Berry Road at Depton from June the 6th to the 10th with surface dressing work then on June 14th to 15th. For the A143 Berry Road at Pakenham, preparation work runs from June 13th to 17th, with June 20th to the 29th lined up for surface dressing, road markings and studs. At the A143 Berry Road in Wortham, surface dressing, road markings and studs will be run from June 20th to 24. As I have been saying for the last uh, few uh, editions that I've been reading, I've been featuring uh, the Abbey 1000, which is the celebrations to mark the millennium of the Abbey of St Edmund, which have been postponed until 2022. But uh, I'm continuing with the story of the Abbey, and this story is headed A Bridge Too Far. St Edmund and the Hoxon Theory For many years, Hoxon has claimed the site of Edmund's martyrdom. The village hall is even dedicated to him. But what are the origins of this claim for the death of Edmund in November the 20th, 869? As we know, King Edmund had met the Danish army at Thetford, which he had made his capital. Defeated by a vastly superior army, he fled the battlefield, going southwards according to modern interpretation. Why would Edmund have fled eastwards towards Hoxton from Thetford? It made sense for Edmund to go south and try to reach his headquarters near Bradfield. After all, his followers found his body near here and his martyrdom site, a place called Hagelsdon, or de der derivations of this spelling. The story of Edmund's death tells how he was shot full of arrows when tied to a tree, an ancient tree purporting to be this instrument of bondage fell under its own weight in 1843, according to a commemorative obelisk in a field at Hoxton. However, an arrowhead found within the tree has been disproved as just being a piece of fencing iron. Legend says that Hoxon, a wedding couple crossing Goldbrook Bridge, spotting Edmund's spurs glinting in the water, betray him. However, rowels on spurs were not in use until the early 13th century. Note, wedding couples do not cross now. According to the earliest sources, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and that of chronicler Abu of Fleury, Edmund, ended up at Beodrisworth, where a wooden church was built to house his body in 903. Herfast, the bishop of Elmham, in 1070, wanted to move his area of bishop's ecclesiastical authority to Bury soon after moving it to Thetford. Only a personal visit by Abbot Baldwin to the Pope in 1073 prevented this. The issue was finally settled in 1081 when a special council held at Winchester settled in Abbot Baldwin's favour not to have the see moved to bury St Edmund's. Unsurprisingly, the Abbey Church started to be built then. The interpretation of the name Hoxon as Hagelsden hardly stands up to scrutiny. After all, Hoxon in Old English is Hosenew, meaning heel sinew, an ulterior motive for claiming Edmund being martyred at Hoxon is that Bishop Lusigna of the Norwich Diocese gave Hoxon to the monks of Norwich and then tried to get Bury St Edmunds into his own. See in 1101. Historic yacht, which saved lives at Dunkirk, is now sailing for charity. 
A motor yacht which rescued British soldiers at Dunkirk in 1940 is to set sail on a new mission to raise vital funds for charity. Tony Bilson spent five years painstakingly restoring the yacht Estralita and researching her history. Next month, Mr Bilson will set off from Lowestoft alongside fellow Royal Navy veterans Tony Morrison and Michael Hawkins, who served on the HMS Bulwark in the 1970s. The journey next month, setting off on May the 19th, will include a Dunkirk plaque laying ceremony taking place in Portsmouth and a trip up the Thames to take part in the 40-year Falklands War commemorations. Members of the public will be invited to board the yacht and learn more about its history, with donations welcomed in aid of the Jenny Lind Children's Hospital in Norwich, where Mr Bilson's daughter Rachel Chowdhury works, as well as for the Armed Forces Charity SSAFA. Mr Bilson from Dis found the Estralita in a poor state in Ramsgate and had no idea about her vast history, which has included tragedy, celebrity, name changes and a commendable wartime record. Between 1940 and 1945, the Estralita was used by the Royal Navy as a harbour patrol boat in Poole, defending against invasion and to rescue downed pilots in the English Channel. Mr Bilson said, Last year we took her out for the first time and sailed to Ramsgate, so now we are aiming to go even further, raising as much money as possible for the two charities. During Mr Bilson's research, he discovered Estralita had operated as a harbour patrol vessel in Poole during the Second World War. Lynn Crombie, Norwich and Norfolk University Hospital fundraising coordinator, said, It is fantastic that a little boat with such a colourful history, which has saved lives, is now going to be raising money to improve the lives of our young patients at Jenny Lind. We wish Tony and his crew a safe time at sea as they embark on this wonderful coastal journey. If you're interested in making a donation, go to www.justgiving.com forward slash Estrelita. Group Working Helps Restore Lamp Post A historic lamp post which collapsed in Bury St Edmunds Town Centre has been restored. The Cornhill lamppost, erected in 1882 and built by Walter McFarlane and Co, crashed to the ground on May the 11th, 2020, due to a fault. Keen to have it restored, Melanie Lesser, chairman of Bury St Edmunds and Beyond, secured funds from Suffolk County Council, as well as the Bury Society, Our Bury St Edmunds, the Bury Town Trust and councillors Robert Everett and David Nettleton. It was repaired by Cast Iron Welding Services in Leicestershire. Melanie said, I was keen to have it restored, as I felt a modern lamppost in such a prominent part of our historic town would look out of place. The project is a great example of group working in Bury St Edmunds. Work is underway to move more than 25 beach huts back to their seafront sites after they were ripped from their positions and damaged by storm-lashed seas. The fierce waves at the start of the month left the huts at Felixstowe jumbled together and the promenade deep in sand and shingle. High-powered sweepers have cleared most of the prom so that it is safe for pedestrians and cyclists to use although there are sections in Sea Road still needing attention, and a digger was brought in to clear a car park that was inundated by the waves. The prom was left up to five inches deep in material, and in some places even more, with sand deep enough to touch the seats of benches lining the route. Now contractors brought in by East Suffolk Council are putting the beach huts that were moved from their sites in Sea Road and at Manor Terrace back in place, the workers are lifting the huts onto the prom, in some places over the seafront lights power cable, so their platforms can be levelled and chalets can be repositioned. Dragons are preparing to make long-awaited return to Ipswich waterfront. 
with the fresh start, new beginnings, Dragon Boat Race back on the calendar. The flagship event for the Suffolk-based charity has been cancelled for the past two years due to the pandemic, but it will return on Saturday, June the 11th. Dozens of rowers will race along the marina in Chinese dragon boats to the rhythm set by their drummer. And the number of teams taking part this year has been doubled, with only three spots still available. In 2019, the event raised £14,000 for the charity which provides therapy to children who have been victims of sexual abuse. Fresh Start New Beginnings is the only provider of this type of care in the region. It takes about £2,500 to provide care to a single child and with around 200 children helped each year and an ever-growing waiting list, charity bosses say funds are crucial. Sandra Lucas, corporate fundraiser with Fresh Start New Beginnings, said it's incredibly exciting to be able to bring this dragon boat back to Ipswich this year, having missed out on this fun spectacle of an event for two years. We really want to make this the best one yet. With a bumper allocation of teams, we're confident that will happen and we'd encourage anyone interested in taking part to get in touch to secure one of our last three spots. We provide the boats and a helmsman. You just need to provide 10 enthusiastic people to paddle and a drummer to keep you all in time. A huge thank you to Associated British Ports for allowing the event to take place. And of course, all the businesses who have entered teams already this year. We've also received generous sponsorship from Ipswich Buses, who will be entering a team. So a big thank you to them. Whether you're a group of friends or a business, this is a fantastic day out for all. We'll have side stalls, entertainment, food and drink lining the waterfront to make this a day to remember with a real carnival atmosphere. Anyone interested in entering a team or hosting a food, drink or entertainment stall is asked to contact Sandra at FSNB dot org dot uk or call o one four seven three seven oh five one one this next piece is headlined with three twitter hashtags hashtag your future hashtag your say hashtag your west suffolk the latest stage of a plan to help communities thrive, improve health and well-being, grow the economy and protect and improve the environment is to be discussed. The West Suffolk Local Plan covers the period up to 2040 and will eventually become a legal planning document. It allocates and guides where land is protected and where opportunities for development might take place, such as for new housing or land for employment. The local plan also contains the policies that secure the delivery of affordable housing, new play areas and public open space, supported by infrastructure such as improvements to health and educational facilities as well as roads. Without a plan, development can and will still happen, but the council and the residents will have less of a voice and less certainty over the council's approval or refusal of applications that come forward. Without an up-to-date local plan, the council won't be able to prevent inappropriate, speculative development from taking place, as national guidance would favour sustainable development. That in turn would mean less protection for greenfield sites and the countryside, fewer safeguards to stop employment, land being used for housing, as well as inappropriate garden, infill and other development that negatively impacts on local communities. The creation of a local plan has to go through several stages with public consultation as set out by the government. The evolving local plan has already gone through a call for sites and an issues and options public consultation in 2020. 
public feedback from that stage, conversations with stakeholders and emerging evidence and national policy guidance have been used to narrow down the sites for consideration. It has also helped the creation of new policy guidelines, which will eventually become future planning policies to be used in planning decisions. Now, the Council is preparing to go out to public consultation again, this time on its preferred options. That in turn will lead to another public consultation next year on the submission draft of the plan, taking on board feedback and evidence before finally submitting the plan to the Secretary of State. He or she will then appoint a planning inspector to carry out an independent examination and it is only after the planning inspector has found the plan acceptable that the local plan can be recommended to a meeting of the council to agree to adopt. On the 26th of April, West Suffolk Council's Cabinet was asked to recommend to council on the 17th of May that public consultation on the preferred options draft begins on the 26th of May. The preferred options report suggests which sites should go forward in the plan, including early indicative numbers for how many homes could be built on a site. In, in total, the government has identified that 15,200 more homes will be needed in West Suffolk by 2040 to meet future housing needs. Some 8,600 of these already have planning permission which leaves land for at least 6,600 homes to be identified through the new local plan. The preferred options stage includes land for 7,134 homes. This is because the council has to over-allocate to provide a level of choice and certainty that it will meet its housing needs. The preferred options are made up of new sites as well as sites in the existing plans of the former St Edmundsbury Borough and Forest Heath District Councils that are yet to gain planning permission and which are now being reassessed as part of this new local plan. Full details on how people can have their say will be published when the preferred options consultation launches. The Cabinet report which includes details of the preferred options for strategic, non-strategic policies and settlements within West Suffolk can be found. And now I have a very, very long web address, which we will repeat at the end. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash democracy stop West Suffolk stop gov dot UK forward slash lowercase i lowercase e capital L I S T capital D O C U M E N T S stop lowercase A S P X question mark capital C L D equal sign five two one ampersand capital M L D equal sign four nine six eight ampersand capital V E R equals four. Two multi million pound electric cranes have arrived at the port of Ipswich as part of a plan to lower the site's greenhouse gas emissions. The mains electric hydraulic cranes are among the first in the UK. Port owner Associated British Ports, abbreviated to ABP, said ABP said its sustainability drive has resulted in a 36% fall in greenhouse gas emissions by the company since 2014. The Mantsinen model 95ER cranes have been adapted to their job at the port and it is estimated that they will also save up to 5,275 tonnes of CO2 over their lifetime. They can be powered by solar energy generated at the port, which is already home to 4,000 solar rooftop arrays. It has also invested in an on-site substation to future-proof its sustainable operations so that it can accommodate up to four electric cranes. 
ABP joined forces with provider Cooper Specialised Handling on the project at the port, which handles more than 2 million tonnes of cargo each year and is the UK's top grain export port. Divisional port manager Paul Ager said ABP is really committed to reducing the greenhouse gas emissions arising from port activity. This £4 million investment at the port is the latest development in ABP's carbon reduction goals tailored to its operations. The transition to electric machines will not only improve ABP's cargo handling service to its customers, but will also feed into ABP's wider policy to reduce CO2 emissions all the way down to zero. A memorial to past times. No more than a track, Vinery Road in 1920 led to the Cullum-owned Hardwick estate, now the site of the West Suffolk Hospital. How this will all change with the building of a new hospital. The large house in the road called the Vinery is probably where the road name came from. To the right was open countryside. There is a monument to Ouida, the pen name of Berry-born popular Victorian author Louise de Ramey, a spendthrift and an animal lover. She disassociated herself with England and moved to Italy, dying there in abject poverty in 1908. In the same year, Daily Mirror readers donated money for a horse trough, unveiled in 1910 by George Jerry Milner Gibson Cullum, the last owner of Hardwick House. The newspaper tried to ameliorate an error it had made in publishing a photo of a rather bedraggled peasant woman purporting to be her, something she vehemently denied. There are two bronze figures, sympathy, cradling a dog, and courage, holding a sword. Lord Curzon of Kedlington added an inscription. Her friends have erected this fountain in the place of her birth. Here may God's creatures whom she loved assuage her tender soul as they drink. To the right of the memorial is a Cullum family Y-shaped cottage with its iconic candy twist chimneys. There are still several of these unusual properties around the town with the letters TGC on, especially at Webstead and Horsted, a former seat of the Cullum family. The Reverend Sir Thomas Jerry Cullum, the eighth and last baronet of Hardwick, who died in 1855, had these houses built in the 1840s. There's one shown in the photograph in the newspaper from which I'm reading and that was demolished in the early 1960s for the nearby Stamford Court shopping precinct. Incidentally, the bridge over the River Linnet nearby was known in medieval times as Stanwerp Brig. Hmm. One of Suffolk's best-known figures, the Honourable Jill Ganzoni, has died at the age of 91. The sister of former Lord Lieutenant Lord Belstead, Jill Ganzoni was well known in her own right as a Deputy Lieutenant, as a philanthropist and for her work with many organisations in the county. She was born in Ipswich in 1931, the only daughter of Francis John Childs Ganzoni, the first Baron Belstead and Conservative MP for Ipswich and Gwendolyn Nee Turner. Her brother John was born a year later. They had a happy childhood growing up in the family home Stoke Park on the edge of Ipswich. Keen on riding, her love of horses continued well into adulthood. On the death of Jill's father in 1958, her brother became the second Lord Belstead serving as a minister under three Conservative Prime Ministers and as a leader of the House of Lords. Jill supported him throughout his career. Her cousin, Philippa Goodwin, said Jill lived in Suffolk for most of her life. 
involving herself in the communities where she lived. She played a role in many local charities and organisations. Always interested in education, she was a Chair of Governors at Ipswich High School from 1994 to 2006. Having been a dedicated girl guide herself, Jill went on to be Vice President of the Suffolk Division through the 1960s and 70s, playing host to guiding events in her garden. Jill was one of the guiding lights of the Suffolk Historic Churches Trust, helping the 11th Duke of Grafton, along with Norman Scarfe and Alfred Williams of Hawley Park, to launch the Trust in December 1973. She also helped launch its annual cycle ride that has raised £5 million over the years for the charity. The Church of England was central to Jill's life and she became a lay reader. In 2007, she was awarded the Cross of St Augustine at a ceremony in the chapel at Lambeth Palace, which marked her 25 years on the General Synod. It was her work on its pensions board, caring for retired clergy, that she considered her most significant achievement. Her Ganzoni Charitable Trust offered support to charities across Suffolk, complementing a similar trust set up by her brother. The trust worked to target small concerns where relatively minor donations could make a large difference. In this way, it reached across a huge range of causes. She remained actively involved in the trust until a couple of years ago. Jill's brother John died in 2005. She made many friends through her life and is survived by several second cousins. And now we're looking back 25 years ago and the headline is Monster Raving Looney Party Wins Poll. As everyone waited for the May the 1st general election in 1997, voting came early at Stowmarket High School in a mock poll. And the main political parties were not top of the polls. The monster-raving loony party proved a much more popular choice. Madcap candidate Chris Harvey swept the board after totting up 454 votes when students went to the polls. Chris succeeded in beating Labour Party candidate Sarah Clark by 305 votes and Conservative Sarah Wall by a staggering 394 votes. The monster-raving loony party used policies like arming the Women's Institute and performed a musical manifesto. And now we're going to move on to some letters. And my first letter is from Graham Day, Stowmarket. Navigational problems. I was interested to read John Watkins' letter on signage and Catherine Goston's letter on potholes. Very Free Press, April the 15th. Diversion signs are always a nightmare as you never know how well the diversion has been set up. I recall a problem at Stokash on the A140 one evening when I had to work in Norwich. Needing to be certain where the diversion went, I asked the young road worker its route. I don't know, mate, he replied. I don't live around here. I decided to trust the diversion and followed the signs through the village and promptly came out further down the hill where the road was still closed. I found my own solution. A friend in Ipswich has a neighbour who carefully drove down the street to avoid the many potholes. When he stopped at his house, a police officer who had followed him, presumably thinking he had been drink driving, was surprised to find out that the neighbour had been avoiding potholes and was sober. Guy McGregor, the county councillor who some years ago was responsible for highways, faithfully promised that he would ensure that all potholes were filled in. Another politician's broken promise. The only recourse on either of these issues is to pressurise the local county councillor for the area. If the diversion signs are not moved or are inadequate, 
then perhaps the county councillor should drive through them themselves. Perhaps it will work, but as the road in Ipswich I mentioned earlier is still in the same state, I do not hold my breath. A celebrity who lives in the area might help and embarrass the county council and spark them into action. Hope, as always, springs eternal. Food Museum deserves our support. This is from Mrs A. Watson in Stowmarket. As a long-time member of the Food Museum, brackets formerly the Museum of East Anglian Life, I felt compelled to write in following the deluge of misconceptions in your letters pages from concerned members of the public who clearly, it seems, haven't visited the museum in the last decade and yet claim to speak for us all. I attended the consultation evening at the museum in 2019 and was thoroughly impressed by the clear thought and direction that had been put into the plans. As a member, I'm excited to see the investment that is being put into the site and contrary to what has been claimed about the collection being left to rot, I've seen more teams of volunteers working on the old farming machinery in the last few years than ever before. And if you're that concerned, the museum is always looking for volunteers. The staff and volunteers at the museum are a thoroughly lovely bunch and deserve our support. The museum is a testament to their hard work and dedication and long may it continue to thrive. Now, I know we've had a lot on the hospital. This is just an article on the history of Hardwick House. Hardwick House was a manor house set at the back of Hardwick Park, formerly the medieval grazing lands of St Edmundsbury Abbey. It was owned by Sir Robert Drury, Speaker of the House of Commons, who moved into his new home in 1610. In 1656... The estate was sold to Sir Thomas Cullum. The house was improved over the years and the Cullums added gables, towers, gazebos, fountains, statuary and planting. The extensive grounds were largely the creation of Sir Dudley Cullum, owner of the manor between 1680 and 1720, and a keen horticulturalist. The house had a two-acre kitchen garden with pear, apple plum, cherry and fig trees. John Evelyn helped Dudley create his winter garden, a range of heated greenhouses and conservatories where he grew oranges, peaches, grapes and palms. There was an Italian garden with rose bushes and flower beds, a large pleasure ground with gazebos and planted with exotic trees and shrubs. Visitors would have been shown around these amazing gardens and to explore the wilderness with its winding paths and a miniature mountain scenery. The house was ultimately dismantled for building materials in 1926-27 after John Milner Gibson Cullum died without a male heir. Some of the land was sold off for houses and later the hospital and the rest has become Hardwick Park. A joyous jubilee. June's Platinum Jubilee celebrations mark an extraordinary 70 years since Queen Elizabeth II ascended the throne, surpassing the previous record held by her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, who reigned for 63 years. Born Elizabeth Alexandra Mary on the 21st of April 1926 at 17 Bruton Street in London, the girl nicknamed Lilibet wasn't destined to be Queen. She was the eldest daughter of Prince Albert and Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, the Duke and Duchess of York. The Duke, a shy man with a pronounced stammer, was the younger brother of Edward, who was the heir to the throne, and the family of four with their two daughters were anticipating a quiet life without the heavy responsibilities of rule. However, an event that shocked the nation was to propel Elizabeth into the spotlight and take her on quite a different path. Only 12 months after his coronation, Edward VIII's love for a twice-divorced American woman, Wallace Simpson, led him to abdicate. It may seem strange to us now, but even into the 1960s, it was strictly taboo for a sovereign or a member of the royal family to marry a divorcee. As second in line to the throne, Edward's brother Albert had to take his place. Crowned King George VI on the 11th of December 1936 at 40 years old, Princess Elizabeth, then ten, became heir. From that point, her education and upbringing focused on the fact that she would one day be queen. 
1947, she married Lieutenant Philip Mountbatten in Westminster Abbey. They settled in Clarence House, and two years later, Prince Charles was born. Although still only 55 years old, in the summer of 1951, King George's health began to fail, and the young Princess Elizabeth had to undertake her first official duty when she stepped in to represent her father at the Trooping the Colour. That autumn, Elizabeth and Philip departed for a tour of Canada and Washington, where the young couple were enthusiastically received. In January 1952, they set out for another tour of Australia and New Zealand. However, on the 6th of February, while en route in Kenya, the King died of a coronary thrombosis at Sandringham. Elizabeth immediately flew back as Queen. She was just 25 years old. After three months of private mourning for her beloved father, Queen Elizabeth moved into Buckingham Palace and began to start the routine duties expected of a monarch. She took her role seriously, conducting her first state opening of Parliament in November 1952. Her coronation was held at Westminster Abbey on the 2nd of June 1953. Controversially, Prince Philip was instrumental in having the ceremony televised. Both the Queen and her husband subsequently worked to modernise the monarchy, while retaining its traditional sense of public duty and creed of never complain, never explain. Like all of us, Queen Elizabeth has lived through difficult times and last year lost her husband and life companion. But despite bouts of ill health herself, she has stoically continued her duties. Now, aged 96 and still head of the Commonwealth, she has lived a life of service to her country and is admired, respected and loved around the globe. I'm going to go back to see if we can squeeze in another couple of uh, letters before we finish. So this one is from B. Walker of Woodbridge. Sir, the controversy over civil servants returning to the office versus home working is another distraction being thrown up by a desperate government. Surely flexible arrangements are possible or some sort of compromise. It is ironic that Jacob Rees-Mogg, the Minister for Brexit Opportunities, in other words, the Minister for Something That Doesn't Exist, should apparently imply that civil servants are avoiding work. His own example of attending work is to sprawl across the House of Commons benches, eyes closed, arms folded. One rule for them and a different rule for us, of course. All he can f find to do now is to waste time leaving notes on workers' desks and waste government-headed notepaper. This is just another pointless diversion so typical of the rock-bottom standards of this current government. And another letter is Answer to Energy Crisis, and this is from Mr R. A. Smith Hadley. Sir, Mr Dayton's letter treads all over all too familiar ground, and as does the government's energy strategy with heat pumps, solar and wind. I believe all these have necessarily limited lifespans with enormous future decommissioning costs. Yet running from Northumberland down to Kent, we have ground conditions suitable to quickly drill down 2,000 feet, installing twin pipes down cold water, up hot water, with the hot water being used to generate electricity if required. Such schemes could go on farms with surplus being exported to the national grid, with early winds going to farms close to the larger cabling needed for what could be considerable export. Even the extraction spoil could be useful on farms and or sold. We have the farms, we have the drills, skills and technology just waiting to be used en masse and in my opinion, the simple pipes used will last a good deal longer than the alternatives our government wishes us to expensively foist on us. And that's from Mr. Ari e. Smith Hadley. Well, we're coming to the end of uh, this new stock. So if you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We'd like to acknowledge our appreciation of the Bury Free Press East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. 
News Talk, News Talk, I beg your pardon, News Talk. We'll be back again next week. So until then, from Ruth, Christian and myself, Graham, it's goodbye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St. Edmunds studio.